Well, back in 1993, moviegoers were introduced to weatherman Phil Connors, who was played by Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day. Does anyone remember that movie? It's a long time ago. A couple, okay. I wrote down the date, 93, and then I was thinking that, I think it was last week, Travis was drumming, and he admitted to not having even been born yet in 93, so starting to feel my age a bit. In the movie, weatherman Phil Connors relives the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, where the Groundhog Day Festival takes place. Now, some detail-oriented movie watchers suggest that he lived the same day for more than three decades. So this was not just a week of being stuck. This was you know, 30 plus years of being stuck, reliving the same day over and over and over. Well, how does he cope with that? How does he cope with living the same day again and again and again? What does he do to try to find meaning when, when nothing he does seems to matter from one day to the next? Because he starts the day over again when he wakes up. Well, we, as we watch the movie, we see that he looks for happiness in all kinds of experiences, trying out all kinds of different things in his quest for meaning. He turns to self-serving pleasure. He doesn't deny himself anything. There's a scene where he's in a diner gorging himself at a table full of food, drinking coffee straight out of the pot, all while smoking a cigarette. Remember, this is the 90s. That was okay back then. Another day, he just finally gets annoyed enough with someone that he just hauls off and punches him out. He uh, goes after relationships and women and seduces women. But all of that leaves him still feeling empty. And so then he turns to greed. He robs an armored car and uses that money to buy all the things he ever wanted, the clothes, the car, the lifestyle that he thought he deserved or wanted and couldn't afford. But even that left him empty. Next, he turned to despair. And when he realized that he can't seem to break the cycle, that he's going to be stuck on February 2nd forever, he actually takes his own life multiple times. But every time he wakes up back in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, finally he turns to knowledge and says, maybe I'll just better myself. He takes up piano and ice sculpting, French poetry, all in an effort to become more well-rounded. But if you remember the movie, you remember that Phil doesn't wake up on February 3rd, the day after Groundhog Day, until he finally reached contentment in his current circumstances. The last time that he lived that February 2nd, he looked into the eyes of a woman that he's fallen in love with and says, I don't know what will happen tomorrow, but all I know is that I'm happy right now. You know, in a lot of ways, Groundhog Day is telling a similar story to the book of Ecclesiastes. As one writer says, we're stuck in this monotonous prison where nothing we really do changes anything. And there's nothing under the sun that can make this meaningless experience meaningful. Uh, Matt Chandler, a pastor down in Texas, says this, life is actually more like Groundhog Day than we want to admit. And he goes on to prove his point. He says, well, what will you do tomorrow? What will you do on Monday? The alarm goes off in the morning, you slap the button, get 10 more minutes of sleep on the snooze timer. Then you stumble into your bathroom and you brush your teeth, have a quick shower. 
you get dressed, head down to the kitchen, make yourself some breakfast, get ready for the day, and head off to work, whatever that might look like. Put in a few hours at the office, take a break, go for lunch. Uh, put in a few more hours at the office and jump back in the car to head back home. Maybe you stop for a workout on the way home. And then you get home, you, you make some dinner, you sit down and turn on the TV to see what happened that day, and after a long day, you go to bed. What does Tuesday look like? In the book of Ecclesiastes, we find a guy who is faced with the monotony of life, who's trying to find meaning in anything that life might offer him. And he concludes that everything is meaningless. In your Bibles, if you open your Bibles, you can find Ecclesiastes after the book of Proverbs. This is one of those ones that we maybe don't often pull up and look up. And so I'm excited to walk through it together for the next few weeks here. This book is part of what's called wisdom literature in the Old Testament. That's a a, a broad, overarching genre. And the writing in this book is a mix of teaching and poetry and a little bit of narrative mixed in. So as we read the words, we need to keep that in mind. This is is the kind of writing that we're reading. It's a mix of poetry and, and, and teaching and narrative all together. Now, the book was written, as we see in verse 1, by someone who's called the teacher, or maybe the preacher, depending on the translation you have in front of you. And most scholars suggest that the author is King Solomon. And based on this text and and what we know about Solomon from other places in the Old Testament, this seems pretty likely. Now, just a little bit of background on this king for us. We can go back to the book of 1 Kings, a little bit earlier in our Old Testament, And we read that when Solomon became king, he followed his dad, David. So he's kind of the third big king. Followed his dad, David. But when he became king, he was quite young. And so uh, early in his reign, he was visited by God in a dream. And God said, whatever you ask for, Solomon, you'll get it. So ask wisely kind of thing. And Solomon being wise at this point in his life, asked for more wisdom, that he would be able to govern God's people well. And God granted that request, and the nation flourished. And Solomon is known to be one of the wisest kings that ever lived. And his kingdom was established through his thousands of wise sayings, songs that people from all over the world came to hear. And much of these sayings we still have today in the books of Proverbs and Songs of Solomon, or Song of Solomon, and here in Ecclesiastes. But as he aged, Solomon became, as as one writer says, a greedy, lustful, power-hungry, idolatrous fool. Strong words for one of Israel's kings. But we read that Solomon violated the kingly commands that we read in uh, Deuteronomy 17. He collected possessions and people and women for himself. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. There's a joke about wisdom to be made there, but I'm going to leave that one. (laughs) And because of his fall, we'll call it, his heart was pulled away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, and towards false gods, all kinds of false gods. And he didn't deny himself anything that he felt like he wanted. And as for the kingdom... It actually wound up ruined and divided forever following Solomon's reign. Now, tradition says that this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, shows us an older, repentant Solomon looking back on his life, looking back on all the mistakes he's made, and trying to pass on the lessons he's learned through those mistakes. 
Again, we're not totally sure if that's what's happening here, but there's a strong case for it, and it's, it sounds like that could be it. When we look at the, the timing and the setting of when this book was written as well, when Solomon reigned, uh, the people of Israel were actually at a bit of a crossroads themselves. They were no longer a, a transient agricultural society, but they had stopped. They would started to occupy cities, and, and Jerusalem was the hub, and, and you know, David built that, and Solomon was building the temple in Jerusalem. They were, they were settling, and, and their, their sort of who they were, their identity was changing. But even where they settled was at kind of the middle of the trade routes between Egypt and Asia and Europe. They kind of all had to travel through this region, which meant fortunes could be made and fortunes could be lost overnight. So many people scrambled to get rich and get rich quick in this new life. But the teacher warns in this book, Apart from God, people gain nothing from their toil. And so the message of Ecclesiastes, I would suggest, is just as relevant today as it was when it was written well over 2,000 years ago. See, how many of us have thought or have heard someone say or can identify with the feelings that, you know what, I, if I just had a little bit more money, if I, if I just had that bump in the paycheck, then I could be happy. If I just had a little more pleasure in my life, I could be happy. If I just had a little more success, then I would really be happy. I just need a little more something. Well, Solomon, the teacher here, had everything, tried everything. And then in this book, at the end of his life, looked back at it all and said, it's all meaningless. His message for us begins in verse 2, where we read, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now the word in this verse that's translated as vanity is the Hebrew word hevel. And it's a bit tricky to nail down. Other translations, again, I don't know what you've got in front of you, but you might read the word futility or absolute futility. Or you might read meaningless there. They all sort of surround what this word means. When the teacher says vanity of vanities, he's talking about the greatest meaninglessness in the world. Another sort of similar grammatical statement is when they were building the temple, remember at the heart of the temple, what, what was there? The, the most center place was called the? The Holy of Holies. Same grammar there, right? This is not just a holy place, but this is the holy place. The holiest place anywhere. And so this language of vanity of vanities, it's the same thing. This is the most meaningless thing. As meaningless as possible. The word always carries with it, uh, or also carries with it the idea that, uh, that life is vain. It's meaningless. It's absurd. This word hevel is used some 30 times in the book. So again, when we see a word over and over and over and over again, we need to sort of sit up and take notice. What is the author trying to tell us? What's the point? Literally translated, the word means something like a breath or a vapor. It carries the connotation of something that's fleeting that we can't really grab a hold of. And so again, I, I'm not sure what you've got in front of you, what specific word your specific translation committee chose here. But whenever you see a word like meaningless or futility or vanity like we have from the ESV here, I want you to think of 
stepping outside your front door on a cold winter day, take a deep breath before you do that. Take a deep breath inside, step outside, and blow all that air out. You just got this cloud that appears for a second, and then it's gone, and that's it. There's a couple other examples in the Bible where this word is used. Uh, In Psalm 39, verse 5, the psalmist writes, In fact, you've made my days just inches long. My lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Hevel. James picks up the same word, uh, or the Greek equivalent, rather, in the New Testament in James chapter 4, verse 14, where he writes to the church, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring or what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But there's even a little bit more to this picture than just its brevity. So come back with me to your front step, breathing out the clouds going out there. And as you watch that cloud, that vapor, that mist, picture trying to grab it and hold it in your hand. Can you do it? Probably not, right? Another picture might be to to strike a match or light a candle and then blow it out. It's just that sort of puff of smoke and then it's gone. That's the picture of what we're talking about here. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Other times in the Bible, this word is used in connection with idols, kind of especially in some of the Old Testament prophets. So there's some of that mixed in here as well, that, that they're, they're meaningless. You can craft this thing and you can ask it for things, you can pray for things, but it's, it's futile. It's absurd that you're praying to a carved image or whatever else. It carries with it this idea that that people, we read this throughout the Bible and we can see it right into our own times. Sometimes we try to find satisfaction in created things rather than the creator, God. And if we strive and, and work to look for our ultimate satisfaction in anyone or anything other than God, that is, by definition, idolatry. So that's where we're at here. When we try to place the weight of our ultimate questions and our ultimate needs in life on created things, it just doesn't work because created things cannot possibly bring ultimate satisfaction. We're making a complete category error here, trying to put ultimate things onto created temporal fleeting things. Now, it's important to remember that it's not that pleasure and money and stuff and success or or sex are bad things in and of themselves. But when they become ultimate things to us, they will let us down. We can put it this way. A a good thing turned into a God thing becomes a bad thing. And so throughout this book, we will see that success and possessions and pleasure and even religion for religion's sake are all ultimately meaningless. They look like they can bring us true and ultimate happiness, but it's just a mirage. The problem is, None of these things is ever enough, and they do not last. But as we come to the text, we need to remember that the world was not created this way. It wasn't meant to be like this. When God created the world and put our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, he declared everything was, help me out, what? Very good. That sounds like the opposite of meaningless, doesn't it? The opposite of futile, the opposite of absurd. Everything was very good. Yet when sin entered the world, everything was corrupted. 
now things are broken and creation itself bears the consequence of sin as well. It groans longing for the day when it can be made whole again. Things like disease and death and poverty and evil and injustice are a regular part of our world now, but that's not the way it was meant to be. God created this world as a perfect home for his children, for all of humanity. And he gave humanity good gifts like food and drink and relationships and sex. God designed these gifts to be used as he intended, not as ends in and of themselves. They were actually designed to to cause our hearts to worship the creator. A couple of questions I posed to you in the first service. I got a couple hands. Who, has anybody watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine? My wife asked me after, should you admit that we watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine? No, just online, somebody help me out? Okay. Anybody? <laughs> this doesn't go quite, far, uh, quite as far back as Groundhog Day, but how about The Matrix? Do you remember the first Matrix movie, anybody? No, goodness, okay. A couple, a couple, a couple of weary hands, thank you, okay. Whew, it's getting warm up here. In the Matrix, remember, when, when Neo comes onto the ship and they go to the cafeteria and they put food in front of him, he, it's just this, like, bowl of mush, and he's like, what is this? And all the people around the table are like, well, I imagine it to be this thing. I imagine it to be this thing. But what we've got is this, this mushy bowl of, like, oatmeal, but worse than oatmeal, that has everything we need to survive. So that's what we eat. God could have done that. I've used, I think I've used this analogy before. God could have said, here is some little nutrient brick. Eat it and you'll be healthy. But no, God gave us the great gift of freshly roasted coffee. And God gave us the ultimate gift as a carnivore of, of bacon, right? And steak. And there's fruits and vegetables and spices and all these things. They don't just happen to grow here. These are These are good gifts from our God who wants to give us good things and should cause us to worship. That it's not oatmeal four times a day, five times, whatever, right? It's not just. So when we eat, when we drink, when we enjoy meaningful and intimate relationships, these activities were meant to bring out in us and stir up in us a reaction of praise and gratitude and worship. But as one writer says, like children who do not say thank you for Christmas presents, we now worship the gifts rather than the giver. We look to temporary things like pleasure and sex and money and stuff and popularity and success for lasting satisfaction that they cannot give. Remember, it's not that these things are bad. They are good gifts from God. But when we turn a gift into a God from which we seek ultimate satisfaction, it will let us down and enslave us. And so the teacher raises the question for us in verse 3. What does a person gain or profit for all of his or her efforts, all that he labors under the sun? He asks, what's the point? He asks, of all these things that are under the sun, what's the point? And again, that that little phrase, that's that's a hinge phrase for us, under the sun. It's one that only shows up in this Old Testament book, nowhere else in our Old Testament. And it shows up 29 times. Again, repetition is so important as we read the text. And when we're talking about something that's under the sun, we're talking about anything that's under heaven, anything that's a part of creation. And so that little word leaves God out. 
So maybe right there, hopefully, you can start to see where the teacher is making his mistake. He's looking and searching and was exploring for all these things, but they were all under the sun. Under the sun. And he says, I can't find meaning and purpose and anything that I need, ultimate things under the sun. He says, if there's nothing more than just this life, then it's meaningless. So to answer his question, what do you gain for all your toil under the sun? His answer is nothing. Nothing. You don't gain anything for all your toil and efforts that are under the sun. A few hundred years later, Jesus would post a similar question. It's recorded for us in Matthew 16. He says, for what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world? We could use Ecclesiastes language. that says, gains everything under the sun, yet loses his soul. The answer to Jesus' question is the same. Nothing. Ultimately, nothing. Back to Ecclesiastes. The teacher moves on to prove his point with some carefully constructed arguments, looking at the world around him. Remember, he's writing poetry. This is not a science textbook that he's explaining the world around him. But look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It's interesting and intentional that he says, this generation will go and it will be replaced. Often when we talk about cycles of history, it's a generation comes and goes and comes and goes, right? But he specifically says, this one's going and another one will come, but the earth remains. We will, be, we will expire and be replaced. But the world goes on and on. Similarly, down in verse 7, he says, All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. Again, not a science book. We understand the water cycles and why the water keeps doing what it does. But here he's just observing. And we could stand on the, on the train bridge. We could stand on the bridge watching the bow flow underneath our feet forever. And it would never stop. And where it flows would never be full. It just keeps going and going. And that's what the teacher is calling us to look at here. Then he goes to the sun in verse 5, kind of personifying the sun again in this poem. The sun rises and the sun sets, and then panting, it hurries back to where it rises. He, he pictures the sun as just a struggling being in the sky, panting like, like it's exhausted. It's tired of going from one place to the next and then hurrying back, and the next day, one place to the next. It's just constantly doing the same thing over and over. And finally, the teacher points us to the wind, which at least, unlike the sun, gets to change direction. But gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns to its cycles. One commentator summarizes he says, the whole world is a scene of incessant movement and activity. But is it purposeful? For all the constant motion that characterizes the cosmos, one would think that something would be accomplished, but no. Even as the millennia come and go, any semblance of progress is only a mirage. Activity abounds. Everything is in perpetual motion like a hamster on a wheel, but no destination is reached. The display of eternal, uh, endless cosmic exertion is all for naught. And then verse 8 completes the teacher's point. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, and the ear is not filled with hearing. 
everything is wearisome. It doesn't matter what we can explore. It doesn't matter the words that we can express. It doesn't matter the things that we see or the words that we hear. All things. He continues in verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. I hope you're feeling built up for Sunday morning. And I think it's safe to say that the teacher has made his point, that there's nothing new under the sun. And in, for most of us, most likely, in three or four generations, we will be completely forgotten. So what's the point? Well, here's where I think the teacher is wrong. And I say that carefully. You don't want to say the Bible's wrong, right? But I once heard a talk at a conference where someone stood up and said, Solomon was wrong. He's missed it. I'll concede that all of my efforts and all of my toils and all that painstaking work under the sun may wind up as ultimately meaningless, but there's more to life than just what's under the sun. And that's the Christian message. That's the good news, and that's what we're going to celebrate with communion just a little bit later. Flip back to that Matthew passage for a second, where, remember, Jesus asked that question, what do you gain, uh, or what do you gain if you collect the whole world but forfeit your soul? Well, we've got that question, and, and Jesus sort of answers it for us in a parable uh, in Luke chapter 12. We read this starting at verse 16. Jesus told a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. And he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store all my crops? I will do this, he says. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But then God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. All those things that you have prepared, whose will they be? The point of the parable is that when this rich man died, he lost everything. He gained nothing from all that effort. There was nothing left over. He didn't get to take anything with him. No profit. He was just dead. And so in verse 21, Jesus concludes the parable saying, this is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We could, again, sort of take Ecclesiastes' language and drop it in here and says, this is how it is for the one who, who stores up stuff under the sun and doesn't look beyond it towards God. So what is new under the sun? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Right? Jesus came to show us the way to God. Jesus came to overcome the sin and the brokenness in this world that leads to toil and striving and work and effort and all those things under the sun. He came to show us the way to live a life filled with meaning and without futility. Jesus came and did the one new thing that needed to be done. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and he gave his life for those who would follow him. And so Jesus calls us to repent he calls us to turn from our toil, our striving, our efforts, and turn from holding up the gifts of God as gods and follow him instead. And so he says back in Matthew chapter 6, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying treasure things that are not under the sun. Elsewhere in John's gospel, Jesus adds in John 6, 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Jesus' message is clear that the teacher was wrong. But there is something new, and it's him. He does say, you know what, the teacher was right in that if we just work and, and strive and, 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 and try to gain things from, from storing up and hoarding treasures on earth, we don't. It's meaningless. We don't get anything from our work or our toil that is apart from God. But, but, our lives can have profit. Our lives can have gain if we live lives that are rich towards God. And we store up treasures in heaven and if we serve God. Paul, later in 1 Corinthians 15, confirms Jesus' words by writing this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's word, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Our work for the Lord is not meaningless. Now, this doesn't mean that we all need to quit our jobs and, and move, I don't, know, I don't know, to a monastery and just worship. It doesn't mean we have to, to leave everything and, and go to the bush somewhere and be a missionary somewhere. That may, Maybe those that God has called some of us there. But what it does mean is that our perspective shifts, where we are right now, our perspective shifts from looking at things under the sun to looking beyond the sun to God. How does living in light of eternity affect the way I grocery shop, the way I handle myself in the parking lot, the way I interact with my neighbors, the way I, I, I do my work, the way I do my, my toil and my striving. So here's the challenge. Where is your treasure? What are you working for? What are you striving and toiling for? Are these things that are, that are under the sun? Or does your perspective, your, your heart, your desire, your efforts, do they all go beyond the sun to the things of heaven? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I look forward to uh, continuing to explore this book of Ecclesiastes, which goes after so many things that 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 still tug at our hearts today just as strong as they did when these words were penned. Some things never change. In a lot of ways, there is nothing new under the sun. It's the same struggles, the same pulls, the same desires, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years later. Jesus, I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts, even right now. Bring to mind those, those things that we might have made idols in our lives. The, the, the things in our life, whether it's relationship or work or possessions or success or, or any number of things that we have tried to elevate into being the answers to our ultimate questions. Show us where 
we are inadvertently worshiping something you have created instead of worshiping you. And Jesus, work with us to repent and turn from those things and turn to you. Help us, help us to reorder those disordered desires. Jesus, as we turn to the communion table, we thank you that you were the new thing that came under the sun, that you came from beyond, from heaven. You came down and you, you walked this earth just like we're walking now. You were tempted in every way that we were, but you were without sin. And you showed us how to rightly relate to one another and to God and to creation itself. And even though you lived a perfect life, you gave your life up for us so that we can claim your righteousness. And you died on the cross for our sin, for our uh, idolatry, for our disordered desires, for our identity crisis. And then three days later, you were raised from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and inviting us back into relationship, back into that very good garden relationship. We thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.